First Timothy chapter six, verses 11 through 21 is what we'll be covering today. Um, I don't know if you've ever found a redhead that has never been in a fight, but if you have, you found a very rare thing, all right? Um, I grew up, um, obviously I was gonna say I grew up redheaded, um, but I did. And um, I have been in a lot of fights as a kid. Uh, praise God, I've never been in a fight uh, as an adult. Um, but elementary school all the way up to uh, high school, I've, I've been in several fights. And like I said, if you found a redhead that's never been in a fight, um, you found a rare thing. And in integrity, you find a lot of redheads. It's like one of the highest concentrated areas per capita for redheads. Um, but I can start back to when I was a little kid, uh, my friend Carnell, he started stealing some of my Nintendo games. I noticed that Contra was missing. Uh, I freaked out and I grabbed his jacket and I said, I know you're stealing from me. And as I was grabbing his jacket, another game, Commandos, fell out and then I lost it. And I grabbed him and started choking him. Um, and I honestly, in my mind, I thought it was fine if I killed him. Like, I just thought it was okay. <laughs> and um, my oldest, one of my brothers, Randy, he grabbed me and you know, and I was kicking so hard and told the kid to leave and the kid was crying and I think he had a bloody nose or something like that. Uh, I can go up to uh, a high school where a guy thought it would be funny to throw a Spanish book near me and it ended up making one of those weird turns. You can't throw a book very well. Um, and it made one of those weird turns where it went straight across and the corner of it hit me in the head. And um, you just can't throw anything at a redhead person. You can't do that. Um, so I, I just backhanded him in the class. And um, I was so angry. I was thinking, we're going we're gonna to go right now. And somehow all the people that I've fought with have been bigger than me, but I just think they just see the craziness um, and they don't want to mess with me. And so um, another time in high school, a guy named Matt, and that's another thing. Integrity's full of guys named Matt. Um, so we don't ever call him Matt. We call him by their last names. Um, but this guy named Matt, he we, we were playing Ultimate Frisbee, and it was shirts and skins, and I was skins. Um, you know, I get to show off all my muscles and all that stuff. Um, he thought it would be funny to spit on my back, and I, that is crazy. Like, and I, I couldn't believe it. I stood there in shock, and then when it came on me, I just turned, and I jumped on his head. Um, he was about six foot three, and I just jumped on his head and uh, clawed at him, and um, so it... it it didn't go well. And so, um, but, but most of the time for me, uh, and praise God, I've never been in a fight as an adult yet. Um, but most of the time for me, um, it's not a good idea for a person of my size um, to get into a fight. And so, especially then, I mean, I was under 100 pounds in most of those scenarios. And, um, and so fighting uh, for me w would be ridiculous unless I'm like a featherweight boxer, which I'm not. Um, but, but, but here's the thing about about Christianity. Uh, most of the time, it's assumed in Christian culture that you're not, it's not supposed to fight about anything. Um, you're supposed to, as you see in the Gospels, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. You're not supposed to get into confrontations with people. If something comes up, you're supposed to just kind of lay down and, and, and take a, a beating. And you look at the cross and say, well, that's what Jesus did. So therefore, that's what we should do. Uh, but, but what we're going to see something very interesting in Scripture that, that's honestly, it's contrary to the idea that we're, we're not ever supposed to fight about anything. Uh, because what you're going to see is the Apostle Paul is a guy who is a fighter. And Paul is writing this letter, 1 Timothy, to his disciple, young Timothy. And he's telling him to fight the good fight. And so what does he mean by 
fight the good fight because I, I felt like we're not supposed to fight about anything. We're Christians. We're supposed to be nice to every single person we ever meet. And we're supposed to always just kind of roll over and let people take advantage of us or always take a beating. What does it mean to fight the good fight? And so what we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is what it means to fight the good fight. Let's look at how he phrases it here. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, start with me, if you will, in verse 11. It says this, but as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Notice how Paul phrases this. He says, fight the good fight of faith, meaning that there's a type of fighting that we as believers in Jesus strive for, that this is, this is what we want to fight for. We want to fight the good fight, not just any fight, but of faith. Another way that you could put this is what you will fight for is what you love the most. And so that this idea reigns true in a lot of ways. So if your marriage is struggling, and if you love the person that you are married to, what do you do for your marriage to succeed? You fight for it. If your kids are struggling and they're disobedient, what do you do because you love your kids? You fight for their attention. You fight to be intentional with them. You fight for relationship with them. So college students, if your grades are struggling, and if you love your future husband or future wife, and you love your, what God might have in store for you later on in life, what you do is you fight to improve your grades. So you fight for the things that you really love. If you, if you don't love something, you don't typically want to fight for it. And so your willingness to fight is often telling on how much you cherish the thing that you claim to love so much. And on the flip side of that, if we were to examine our own hearts this morning and we were to recognize what we are currently fighting for, it's probably going to give us an indication of what we hold high esteem this morning. So I want you to think about right now, what in your life are you fighting for the most? And that will tell you what you actually cherish and esteem the most in your life. And so if you're from fighting for a promotion right now, and you're willing to do anything in the world to get it, even if it means that you devalue the effort of others just to get ahead, then maybe you have a love or passion for money or power. If you're fighting to protect your reputation so much that you're willing to lie or gossip about others to make yourself look better, then maybe your love for your image, your love for appearance is primary for you. Parents, if you're always fighting to shelter your kids because you overly worry about them getting hurt, maybe you love safety and comfort above everything else. College students, if you're always at war with your roommates on who cleans the kitchen or who cleans the bathroom, maybe you care for the needs of others more than the needs. Uh, maybe you care for the needs of yourself more than you do for the needs of others. I know no one struggles with any of those things that I mentioned. But here's the thing, what we fight for gives us an indication of what we love the most. And so uh, this morning, hopefully, we'll, we'll get to a point here to where we are leaving this room 
And our desire is to fight the good fight of faith. But notice how Paul phrases this. He says, O man of God. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Uh, Paul, Paul specifically uses this phrase in order to spur on his young disciple, this young pastor, this young timid pastor, Timothy. He tells him, you are a man of God. What a great compliment. He's seeing that this man, his passions are in line with the gospel. He already recognizes that about this man. Ironically, this this phrase, oh man of God, or man of God, is used multiple times throughout the scripture. And, and, and and, And we find it more in the Old Testament. You see it when it's described about Moses or about David or about Elijah. But ironically, the only time that it is used in the New Testament, in all of the New Testament, O man of God, is right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's talking about, this is how Paul describes young Timothy. He gives him this high title that you are a man of God. And what he's saying is, I've seen the gospel work in your life. I've seen the truth of Jesus' perfect, sinless life. His sacrificial atonement on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and, that, and the truth and the reality of that, and how it's changed your life from the inside out. And now I can see that you are a different person, young Timothy. I can see that in your life, and I can see that your life is now marked by being a man all about that truth and that reality. Oh, if that could be said about all of us, right? Oh, man of God. Oh, woman of God that your life is now marked by the gospel. But, but here's what he begins to do. He says, I already see God working in your life because you're the man of God, but here's something I want you to press forward. Now, the next part that he's gonna show us is, this is what a follower of Jesus will look like. This is how a believer will act. This is what a believer will fight for. And so notice what he says first. He says, flee from these things. If you're a man of God and you are marked by the gospel, here's what I want to ask you to continue to do, to flee from these things. Now, it's very interesting here because it doesn't seem like fleeing is fighting because he says fight the good fight, but he also tells them to flee. So, so what does this mean when he tells them to flee? Well, fleeing, by the way, is, is something that he's brought up multiple times in chapter 6. If you look in verse 3, he tells them to flee from false teaching. If you look in verse 4, he tells them to flee from petty conversations that cause divisions. If you look in verse 5, he tells them to flee from a theology that says people are godly based on what they have. He says flee from the prosperity gospel and how ridiculous that is. That's what he's telling him. Flee from these things. Run away from these things. That's what it means to be a good fighter is that you flee. And so what he is, he's saying, you are fleeing and run away from these things, but you're fighting for other things. So let me, let me just kind of put it in a certain term. Um, because I was a redhead growing up, I always, ha- and I knew I was small and I knew I couldn't win a lot of fights. I think it's key that really small framed people have really big friends, And so I did. I had a friend named Nick Nevins, and I don't know what happened, but he, he, early on, he was big. He had like a beard in like fifth grade or something like that. Um, And interestingly enough, I'm taller than him now. When I've seen him, I was like, you're you're the same guy? It was just strange. But then he just towered over other kids. And I remember these, I got in this thing, we were playing war, 
And um, this one kid said he wasn't out, and he was, and it ended up being a huge fight with me and this other kid in the neighborhood. This is before I became a believer, by the way, so I'm, I can <laughs> tell you all these stories. Um, and they were going to come, and they were going to beat me up. And they didn't know my buddy Nick was there, right? And, and Nick is big. I mean, he was a big, big kid. And so when they came up, they knocked on my door, and they were like, we're ready, we're going to fight. And I was talking all this junk. You guys can't, I can handle all of y'all, da, 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 da. And, and as they walked forward, Nick just kind of walked behind me. And he kind of did one of these things. And they just, and you could see this kid, oh, and he just ran off and he fled. Because that was not a fight that he needed to fight. That he knew that it would be foolish for him to dive in and try to fight with us. Because what it was going to be was going to be, we're going to be talking a lot more junk. We're going to be a lot more arrogant and ridiculous and say a lot of ridiculous things. And somebody's going to get hurt. And so what Paul is saying here is that the best way to, to fight in some ways is to flee from certain things that can harm you. So this is a sacrificial fleeing that we see. Notice here in verse, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, we'll have this up on the screen. It says this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so Paul is saying, listen, you can dial into these, this fault, these false teachers who are teaching basically this. If you eat certain foods, you're more godly. If, if you uh, listen to our teaching, which says that we live in a spiritual resurrection, that our bodies are spiritually resurrected and, and, and we can live in a certain way of uh, abstaining from certain foods and abstaining from certain drinks and we are more spiritual people, he says, that's ridiculous. And if you fall into these, in, these, in this camp, if you land here and this is the fight that you're always having with these guys and you don't embrace sound doctrine, all it's going to lead it to is arrogance and pride. So he's saying, listen, flee from that ridicu- those ridiculous teachings. Run away from those ridiculous teachings. And this is what he tells them to embrace. He says, embrace, verse 11, pursue Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, these are the six pursuits of a balanced spiritual life that he lays out. This is what a godly, and in, in, in Timothy's case, a minister of the gospel should hold all of these things. So let's, let's look at the first two, righteousness and godliness. And this covers really the horizontal and the vertical dimensions of a Christian life. Horizontally, there, there must be right conduct and fairness in dealing with other people. So your, your righteousness matters because other people see the gospel in your life. They should see the gospel in your life. Then he talks about godliness. That's, that's vertical. That's how you worship the Lord, that you wait until the Savior comes and you, you, you eagerly wait for and you hope for a better day. So you have this horizontal lifestyle of righteousness and godliness that people see outwardly. And then you have this vertical worship of godliness that people see um, that you hope and long for a better day. The other things he talks about is faith and love, that you're always showing grace and mercy and patience with others. The others he talks about is steadfastness and gentleness. And the way Brian Chappell describes steadfastness, he says it's a relentless pursuit to preserve the gospel in the face of any opposition. This is endurance. I don't know if you see throughout 
Paul's letters, he's always talking about endurance. It's seemingly interesting to me when I look back on my own life and I see people who have prayed the sinner's prayer, right? And then like a week later, they're doing the same stuff they used to do. Because really, a prayer is not what saves you. It's the grace of Jesus that saves you. It's you repenting and believing the gospel that saves you. It's not this ritualistic thing that we go through. And here's what I've noticed. The people that these, they, they do emotional, they have emotional experiences or mo- emotional connections to the gospel, they, they never endure. It's those who really meet Jesus who endure. Because it's the spirit of God who's causing them to endure. And so this steadfastness that that Paul is wanting him to long for is this embracing of the gospel even in the midst of intense opposition. Because here's the thing about people who have emotional experiences with the gospel and they never really meet Christ. When they face real opposition in their life or when they face trials or difficulty, they flee. They're no longer there because it, it didn't take root. And so he says steadfast is also gentleness. Gentleness is that you're showing that even in op- opposition, you can display humility and patience in difficult circumstances. And so here we have him telling him to flee from these things, from this false teaching, and then he tells him to pursue this life, pursue holiness. And so... Notice the reason why, though. Notice what he says, because we have to look at a motivation. He says, verse 12, of faith. And then if you skip down in verse 20, it's very interesting. He tells him the very last words of this letter. He says, Old Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from, what's the word? The faith. Grace be with you. So here in verse 12, he's telling him, fight the good, fight the faith. And then he tells him in verse 21 that some have swerved from the faith. And so why is faith so important here in this letter? Why is it so important here in this, in this last few words to young Timothy? Well, it's because faith is really the essence of how we flee from sin and how we pursue righteousness. Because what is the essence of faith? If we were to describe faith, we went through Hebrews 11 early on, or actually it was back in December, we went through Hebrews 11. The way we described faith in that little short series that we did is that faith is simply taking God at his word, believing God's word. And so you see even in Hebrews 11, the hall hallmark of uh, the, the people of faith. And it's basically all it is is people who've taken God at his word. And even in the midst of that, there's even unbelievers on that list. And they're just taking God at his word. I'll trust God in this. You tell me to walk across the Red Sea, I'll do it. Right? You, you tell me to, to, to move out and live in the desert for 40 days, I'll do it. It's believing God at his word. And so if that is the essence of what faith is, how then does that help us flee from sin and false teaching and pursue righteous living? How does that work? Well, if you think about all of your struggles with sin, I would argue that all of your struggles with sin are at a core struggle of belief. Because why do you lie? 
If you think about it for a moment, why do you lie? You say, well, I don't lie. Well, that, that's a lie, right? Why do you lie? Because you lie because you believe in doing so, it will be better for you. Even when God's word tells you that if you tell the truth, that will be better for you. But you believe the lie and you don't believe God. You don't have faith in God. So therefore, you lie because you think it is better for you. Why do you give in to sexual impurity? Because you don't believe that the purity that God has called you to is enough. And you believe that you will get more delight in impurity. And it's not believing God at his word. It's not having faith in God. We can, we can go on and on and on. Why, why do you worry? Because you don't believe God at his word. Why do you doubt? You don't believe God at his word. Why do you have despair? You don't believe God at his word. See how important God's word is, by the way? Because in the essence of faith, that is how we fight sin. If we know his word, our faith grows. And if our faith grows, then we can fight sin better because we know what his word says. So believe God and trust him at his word. And say, well, I don't have any motivation to do that. I don't don't even want to read the Bible most of the time. I know it's there. I see it. I've got several copies. I've got it on my iPhone, my iPad, on my computer now. I still don't have any motivation to read it. What do I do now with that? What does Paul do to motivate young Timothy? And this is where I, I love what Paul does here in chapter six. Look in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, listen to this, I charge you in the presence of who? God, who gives life to all in Christ Jesus, who is testified, uh, whose testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and flee from the reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And I love what he does here because there's so much to be said about each one of these verses, but because of time, let me just simplify it. Paul recalls one witness for Timothy to be motivated by. And his one witness that he brings in is Jesus. He says, verse 12, he gives life to all. Verse 14, We're to obey Christ until he returns. So he's going to return. Verse 15, he's our savior and king over all. Verse 16, he'll be honored and have dominion forever, for eternity. And so why would Paul place these statements toward the end of his letter? Because this is what he's saying. Listen, young Timothy, you can look at these false teachers and you can listen to these false teachers. But but let me ask you this. Are they kings? Uh, Do they hold everything together? 
Do these false teachers, do they give life to anyone? Do these false teachers, are they immortal? These false teachers, do they die on the cross? These false teachers, do they resurrect? No. So what he's telling him basically is this. Young Timothy, the reason why you fight the good fight of the faith, the reason why you strive to know God's word so that your faith grows is because you have an audience of one. That's what he's telling him. You have an audience of one. Like, I don't know how many of you in this room have fear of man issues, um, but I do. Um, I'm the kind of person that I like to be liked. So sermons can be challenging for me because I want everyone to like my sermons, right? And I don't think you want the pastor that's like, I don't want anyone to like these. I'm going to get up and make everybody mad this morning, right? I don't think you want that. Um, But I I do. I want people to to like my sermons. And, And so early on in my ministry, uh, I, I, had, I was doing some street preaching, which I would not recommend. Um, this is when I didn't know any better, and I did it. So I had a guy with me that was paired up with, and I had nothing in common with this guy at all. He, had, he was a big, burly-looking guy. He had really bright blonde hair and like a weird peach fuzz mustache, but he was like 30-something. It was strange. Um, and he had American flag suspenders, so I knew right away we are going to hit it off. And... Um, so we went out on the street together. And I said, this is who I'm paired up with. And he begins to critique my messages. And I'm like, whatever, weirdo, man, you know, you don't. And, and what he told me was really, it, it, it bothered me. Because he said, Ben, I noticed when you, when you talk, when you're, you're, you're preaching for them. I'm like, yeah, I'm preaching for them. They're the ones who are listening. They're the ones who need Christ. He goes, you need to stop preaching for them. He goes, you need to start preaching to God. I'm like, he already knows the gospel, right? He doesn't need to hear the gospel, right? He knows it, right? He goes, yeah, but you need to preach to an audience of one, then you won't care so much about what people think about you. And I was like, Boo! like, you know, it's just one of those moments where he could have punched me and it would have been better for me, right? And this, it just laid me out. And I just remember thinking about that over and over and over again. And even when I preach today, I have to remind myself that I need to stop preaching for fans. I need to preach to an audience of one so that I would glorify him in what I say. It's not about how much people like me or don't like me. It's about me preaching to an audience of one. And so it made me wonder, what is my real motivation in what I do? Is my motivation to to please and honor Christ or to glorify his name above everything? Or am I glorifying my name above everything else? If I'm glorifying my own name, I'm, I'm worried about what everyone thinks. I'm worried about making everyone happy. But what he's telling him here is, no, you are preaching to glorify Christ. You are living your life to glorify Christ. So I want you to take a moment this morning even to think about that reality. Do you do what you do? Is it motivate, motivated by the gospel? Are you living your life for an audience of one? Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is doing here is he's giving Timothy a gospel-motivated life. That's Timothy's fight. That's his aim. That he was, his pursuit would be to promote Christ and him crucified. So don't waste your life fighting to make everyone like you. Don't waste your life fighting for material things. And this is how he wraps it up even here in verse 17. Notice what he does next. 
Verse 17, it says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain, uh, uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Isn't that good news? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of, of that which is truly life. Now, again, I could do a whole sermon just on those few verses. But let me just say this. There's a tendency here in this culture, in Ephesus, where these false teachers were likely gaining financial gain because of their false teaching. And it was kind of like a celebrity-driven culture to where if you wanted to hear a good rabbi teach, he would charge you a certain amount of money. And so the better teachers would have a bigger audience. And so these guys would often, they would get rich off of teaching, off of their false teaching. But he's telling this church because here's the problem with Christianity. Often something we see something that is evil or that's something that is handled wrongly and we just said everything about that is bad. So, we, so oftentimes money is one of those things. Because in Christian culture, we see money used wrongly. So often we just assume money is evil. And what Paul is telling this church is this. No, money is not evil. Uh, God gives us, provides richly. Uh, God, it's God who uh, richly provides us with everything to enjoy so it's not money that's evil. It's our hearts that are evil, but we can use money for evil. But if our hearts are redeemed by the gospel, we can use it for good. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but if you're American, you're rich, all right? You're rich. And so we, as Americans, can further the gospel, and one of the ways that we can do that is through money. But here's the thing about what Paul is challenging young Timothy with. Money is one of those things that can help you fight to promote the gospel or it is one of those things that you fight your whole life to get and it becomes a God. And so money is a good indicator, and this goes back to my original question, of what you really love. Because if I were to look this morning at what you spend your money on, would I actually see that your life is marked by fighting and promoting the gospel. Would I see that in your life? Like if you were to open up your checkbook this morning, would we actually see that your life is marked by fighting to promote the furtherance of the gospel, fighting the good fight of faith? Would we see that? And so what he's telling, saying is this, look, money can be used to further the gospel. It can be used uh, sinfully as well, but it's good to have this perspective that we love and cherish the gospel even with our money. So everything that God gives us, material things, are to help us further the gospel so that we can continue the fight, the good fight of the faith. But often what we do with the things that God gives us is we use them and we fight for those things only. And we fight to protect and preserve those things only. And we often forget the gospel. And so... My question is this, what is it that you are fighting for 
this morning. If you were to do an inventory of your heart and you look at, let's just say how you spend your money. How about how you spend your time? How about who you spend your time with? Where in your life are you fighting the good faith? Fighting the fight of the good faith. Fighting to promote the gospel. What is it that you are fighting for? Because that is telling of what you actually love. So here is news for you. If you're doing it without Christ, you will not win. If you're trying to live in this world without Christ, you will not win. But with Christ, we win. I joke around all the time about the book of Revelation. Everybody's like, when are you going to do the book of Revelation? I'm like, when I'm 70. Um, Because I'll be crazy enough to where it will make kind of sense, you know, at 70. But here's one thing I know about Revelation is that he wins. That's what I know about the book of Revelation. He wins. In the end, Christ wins. That's all I know. And so with us, here's the good news of the gospel. He's already won the fight for us. Uh, Through the Holy Spirit, we endure. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, we are made new. And we are given eternal life with the sovereign king who reigns over all. And so we hope to live for a better day when we live with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. With no sin and no worry and no doubt and no fear, this is what we live for. And this is what we long for. So listen, fight the good fight of faith means really clinging to Christ. It's clinging to the gospel. And so this morning, my prayer is, that we would fight the good fight of faith, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray.